I want to speak to today about being an unlikely influencer. Now, I don't know about you, but in the world of social media, when you hear the term influencer, something else in my mind comes up, and it's not necessarily like the best connotations in my head. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, everybody these days with a cell phone wants to become an influencer, and I'm like, ugh, I'm so over it. Um, However, I do believe as Christians, we are called to be influencers. We are called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so I want to look today at someone in scripture who had incredible influence and yet everything was appearingly against this little girl. So I'm going to speak from 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, for the sake of time, I won't read all 14 version, verses. I'm going to go from verse 1 to 4, and then I'll skip down to verse 9. Now, Naaman, commander of the army, the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Have you ever had moments where... People are like, oh, yeah, she's a great girl, but did you know this? Well, yeah, he's a great guy, but, well, did you know he went into bankruptcy? Well, yeah, she's a great girl, but did you know in 1972 she had an affair? <laughs> there may be a but. Don't ever let those buts hold you back because when you submit any but, any label, anything that comes against you, when you submit that to God, watch what he will do despite and through that. Um, verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, this and this is what the girl said from the land of Israel. Skip down to verse 9. Then Naaman went in with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, surely he will come out to me and stand and call on the name of his Lord, of his God, wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. Verse 13, his disciples, came, his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped in the Jordan seven times, according to the sayings of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Isn't it beautiful how when God does a job, he doesn't do half of it? Doesn't do half a job. With the healing on Naaman, he actually went above and beyond. To have healed Naaman fully would just to restore his hands like that of an army of commander. So that, that hand would have been wrinkled and old and weary from battle. But God went over and above. Not only did he remove the leprosy, his skin became like that of a child. God always goes above and beyond what we ask him. But I want to focus on this little girl. This little girl can easily be overlooked in scripture because she's barely mentioned 
literally just a couple of verses. And yet this little girl makes a huge impact. So what do we know about this little girl? Well, firstly, we know that she's got a strong faith. This little girl has been removed by force. She was the spoils of war. And she's removed by force from all her family, from everything that's familiar, all her friends, even the language she would have spoken. All of a sudden, she's taken from all that and brought into an unnamed place to work as a slave. This little girl was suddenly not studying anymore. She's not with mom and dad. She's not in the land that serves the God she knew. All of a sudden, she's brought to another place, completely unknown, surrounded by foreign gods. And yet this little girl has such a strong faith in Jesus Christ. She has a, such a surety on the God of her forefathers. She turns to her master and she doesn't say, if the master can go to the prophet, he might be healed. The prophet's done some healings before and if he can just get to the master, he might be healed or he could be healed. She says, if he gets to the prophet, he would be healed. Do you know what's remarkable about that? That in and of itself is a, a faith-filled statement. But what's really remarkable is at that point, do you know that Elisha had never healed anybody of leprosy? So this little girl didn't have any factual evidence to back up her statement. This had never happened. Elisha had never healed anybody of leprosy. And yet she has such a strong faith in God that she says he will be healed. The reason I know that is in Luke 4, 27, it says, there are many people with leprosy living in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were healed. The only one was Naaman, and he was from the country of Syria, not Israel. And so at the moment where this little girl very boldly declares, if my master will get to the prophet, he will be healed, she's basing that completely upon her faith. Wow. What a faith. Secondly, the only thing we know about her is that she's a slave. She's considered the spoils and taken during one of the Syrian raids. She's stolen from her family and taken across the border. I can't imagine how frightened, bewildered, or lonely that little girl must have felt. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was out in Kenya. We were doing a challenge called Challenge 42, where we had 100 people around the world committing to do 42 miles uh, to help raise awareness and funds for our ongoing work in East Africa. And so I commit to do my 42 miles in Kenya. I don't know why. I could have done that in England far easier, where there are coffee shops along the walk and bathroom breaks along the walk. Not so much in the outbacks of Kenya. Um, but on one of the days I was walking and I saw this little boy and he was herding cows. Now, this is not an unfamiliar sight. I see this all the time in Kenya. And I've always presumed he's looking after his family's cows. Many of them, there is no Walmart on the corner. So if you want milk, you go milk the cow. It's literally that rural. And so a sight you see many times is kids looking after their family's cows. It's completely normal. The only thing that stopped me in my tracks was this was a school day and this little boy looked about 12. So I remember thinking, why is he not in school? So I was doing the walk with one of our graduates. Um, it was a boy called Benedict, a man called Benedict. Benedict is now 21. I will forever refer to him as one of my kids because for the last decade, he's just been living in my children's home. He's now just graduated and going on. He's actually managing to get himself um, a DJ job in a radio station. 
Um, it's, it's incredible. Being 10 years on and seeing the kids now who are now young adults who have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ and high aspirations. So I've got one little girl in one year's time who will graduate as an accountant. I've got another kid who this year is applying for um, university to study law. I'm like, oh my goodness, one by one is going to be well taken care of in the future. Come on, they better tithe. And um, <laughs> we have a church as well, just in case you're wondering why I said that. Give it to the house of God um, and missions. Um, um, that's a joke, by the way. I apologize for British humor. We're, we're, we have a dry, sarcastic humor. I apologize in advance. Um, but no, so I was walking through Kenya with one of our graduates, Benedict. And so I said to Benedict, go and talk to the little boy. Why is he not in school? So Benedict went and was, was chatting to him. And the chat was going on for longer than I anticipated. We've got a lot of miles to cover, Benedict. Can we wrap this up? And so I went over to join the conversation and um, said, what, what's going on? And Benedict said, this boy's been trafficked from Uganda. He's not seen his family for months. He's working for a family that he doesn't know to work as a herdsman. He's unpaid, he's uncared for, he's not in school. I don't know what to do. Well, as soon as I joined the conversation, it was one thing when Benedict was talking to this young boy. But when I joined the conversation, unbeknown to me, his slave masters were watching. Now, what maybe didn't help was I was wearing a T-shirt and on the back it said, end in exploitation. Talk about literally wearing a target on your back. And um, so as soon as I joined, all of a sudden his slave masters came running over to us and it became incredibly, incredibly aggressive very quickly. Um, the guy went to kick Benedict and then up came his fist. Well, without even thinking, <laughs> Benedict's 21. He can probably take really good care of himself. But this boy's been in my home for 10 years. Like that maternal instinct just comes out. So without even thinking, I dove in front of Benedict and then all of a sudden I'm looking at this fist thinking, oh, I'm about to be punched in the face. I've never been punched in the face before. This was all happening, you know, kind of when time slows down. Anyway, thankfully, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or because I was white. I don't know what it was, but suddenly the, the fist retracted. But it became very aggressive very quickly. And so it was a case of let's de-escalate the situation and get out of here. But as soon as we got out of sight of the masters, I stopped some locals and I was like, hey, what's the name of this village? What, what district am I in right now? And we noted it all down. And so now we have a team of social workers working on it. One, to find this little boy. Two, to rescue this little boy. And three, to then start working on identifying his family in Uganda, where then we can get the paperwork and get him safely back across into his home country and back with his families. And I remember this little boy's face, the frightenedness, the loneliness, the bewilderment. And all of a sudden, I see this little boy when I read about this little girl. I read about this hero who's a slave. She has everything going against her. This little girl in this scripture has no human rights whatsoever. She's a Hebrew slave. Naaman literally represented everything that she was not. This little girl was nothing compared to him. He was an adult, he's a male, he was powerful, he was privileged, he was free. She was literally the opposite of everything that he was. Thirdly, the only other thing we know about this little girl, is she spoke up. 
she spoke up. That was as simple as it was. This little girl could have chose to not speak up. It's quite clear in scripture that Naaman has quite the temper. Naaman, when he hears about his miracle, verse 11 says he went away angry, and verse 12 says he went off in a rage. This is a man who quite clearly has some temper issues. And so this little girl could have landed herself in some serious hot water by suggesting he go see a prophet that she's got no expertise on. She has no knowledge whether the prophet actually can heal him. And yet, despite that, she speaks up. There's a lot of power when we just speak up. And yet, how many times are we tempted to hold back and not speak up because of fear of how things might or might not work out? But not this little hero. This little girl who we know nothing about speaks up. So other than these three things, she's a slave with a strong faith who spoke up. Other than that, we know nothing about this little girl. We don't know her name. We don't know her age. And neither do we know what happens after Naaman received his healing. We don't know if she ever got released back home, if they rewarded her and sent her back to her family. We don't know. Scripture never tells us. So what can we learn from this nameless hero? Well, the first lesson is that this little slave girl has a heart of compassion. She had every reason to hope that her master may well die. She could have thought, actually, if Naaman dies, maybe then I'll get released back. Maybe if my slave master passes away, well, maybe then I can go back to my family. And yet she still decided to speak into his situation. She has such a heart of compassion. She saw the impact of what leprosy was doing on not just Naaman, but the whole household. And so she decided to speak into that. She has a heart of compassion. One of our kids in Kenya is a boy called Leonard. And when we rescued Leonard a decade ago, um, his daddy had passed away. Um, and his mom, when her, dad, when, his, when her husband died, she turned to alcohol. And the alcohol in Kenya is, is lethal stuff. It's kind of homebrew, strong, like illegal substances. It's, it's, from what I gather, you'd be glad to know I've never tried it, but from what I gather, it's the type of thing when you drink it, you're immediately drunk. And so it causes a lot of issues in our village. Um, our village, uh, the people are actually known as the Marachi people, and Marachi means bad people. And it's a result of the substance misuse. And they go to the substance because they're hungry. They're in like severe, severe poverty. And many families in our area go hungry. And so in order to forget that they're hungry, or in order to forget that their babies just died of malaria, they'll turn to alcohol. And this has been a common, common problem that we've had to really deal with in our village in Kenya. And so Leonard's mom was yet another person who turned to alcohol and it made her incredibly aggressive. Leonard knew that when his mom came home every day, she would be in black and blue. Oftentimes he would say, he'd hear her coming. He'd always hear her before she got to the door because she was in a drunken state. And so he would go and hide under the bed, try to in, trying to avoid yet another beating. And so many times he was just in a bad way. And particularly if he ever used the lamp at night, which when you grow up in a mud hut, there is no electricity. So if you want to read or study or do anything at night, you need a lamp. But if she came home and saw him using the oil lamp, she would beat him so badly because that was money she could have been using on more alcohol. And so Leonard was in quite a bad way when we first took him in. He was quite timid, quite afraid, um, afraid of, of males and females in our, in our staff at the home. 
But through the time, um, not only did Leonard come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of his life, but he absolutely began to blossom in his security. He knew that he could go to sleep at night and not be afraid of who was going to come in the room. And he just began to blossom and grow in confidence and boldness. And I remember every time we would go and say, okay, we're going to do village evangelism. Where shall we go? Leonard would always say, can we go to my village? Can we go see my mom? And this little boy who'd been so abused by his own mother was so desperate that his mum would encounter the same love that he'd encountered. And I remember watching him thinking, wow, that's what it is to look like Jesus Christ. You see, if I'd have been Leonard, I'm just going to be brutally honest, if that was me, I'd have been like, hmm, she was bad to me, so she can just, you know. But Leonard had such a heart of compassion that he longed that his mother would encounter the same love that he'd encountered. And I see that same heart right here with, with this little girl. Lesson number two is this little girl didn't have a place of authority to speak to the commander. And yet she has such a, a heart of compassion and humility that God opened up the doors. I believe that God will give you influence above your ranking when you have a heart of compassion. Now, what I mean by that is so many times in, in Kenya, I'm, I'm British, you've probably guessed from the accent. I live in England. And so for some of our young kids in Kenya, they'll always say to me, have you got any selfies with the queen? <laughs> no. Well, why not? When did you last have tea with her? Well, uh, let me think, when was that? Uh, never. And they can't understand. They're like, but you're British. Why have you not like been with the queen? Were you not with her last week in England? And I try and explain, you know, there's a ranking, there's protocols, and I can't just walk up to the queen and be like, hey, fancy a cup of tea together? Hey, what a selfie, Lizzie. You just, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's protocols, there's rankings. And guess what? I don't have that ranking. I may well be a daughter of the king, but I'm yet to meet the queen. Um, and for this little girl, she is way below the ranking, as it were, in, in human terms, of her being able to go up and speak to Naaman. Naaman was a commander of the army. He was powerful. He was influential. He had direct access to the king. He had what I do not have in England. He had direct access to go and meet with the king and talk. He was a man of power. And yet here is a slave girl who represents the opposite of who Naaman was. And yet, because she has a heart of compassion and humility, she's able to speak into an area that, naturally speaking, she should have not had influence over. And I believe it's the same in our lives. When our lives are one of compassion, when our lives are humbled before our master, King Jesus, watch what doors he will begin to open. When we started working out in Pakistan, I... Um, we opened the safe house back in 2019 and we started with 42, 42, no, that was Kenya. We started with 42 kids in Kenya. We started with 39, 39 kids in Pakistan in 2019. And I remember on that trip, we went back out and we, we came with our cameraman to come fill the exciting opening of the, the safe house. And for the 39 kids that had been rescued out of slavery, this was an incredible time of celebration, huge party. It was amazing. But we made the fatal error, or not so fatal error, of going back into the brick factories. I remember being surrounded by all these kids who have not yet been rescued, kids that the masters won't release kids that to this day are still working 14 hours a day, seven days a week, making bricks 
to put profit in the master's pocket. Meanwhile, they get no education. They get, they get no normal life that that of a child should have. And if they don't make their quota of bricks, then they won't eat that day. By the age of four, a child will have a quota of bricks that they have to make every day. Not the mum and dad. The mum and dad have their own quota. The four-year-old will have a quota of bricks. And if they don't make that quota, they won't get food that day. And that's their life. And when their parents die, they'll inherit that debt. And then when they die, their children will inherit that debt. And for generations, these people that I was meeting in this brick factory will, will be slaves. And I remember just being broken. I sat on a pile of steps and this group of kids came up and I just felt broken. It was one of those helpless moments of, God, where are you in this? How many times do we say that to him? We see an injustice of some sort and we say, God, where are you in this? And do you know what he will often respond with? Son, daughter, where are you in this? What are you going to do about this? What stand are you going to make? What, what, in, what in your hands can you do to make an impact in this area? And so I felt the challenge of God of, okay, Becky, what are you going to do about this? And I'm like, Lord, my dad was a postman. My mum was a cleaner. I come from a very working class background in England. I wouldn't say I come from a poor family because I've now encountered working with poor families. So I would never so insult them by saying that I came from a poor family. But I did come from a working class family. And by English terms, not a wealthy family. And sometimes we can sit and we can see every excuse as to why we could not and should not. Well, Lord, there's people far better qualified for that role than me. Lord, you know, there's people with more finance or more influence, more authority. Lord, ask them to do something. And so often he'll look at us, me and you. And you know why he chooses very normal people like us? Because then when he does something, he gets the glory. We can't claim it as our own. I think everybody knows full well this cannot be anything to do with Becky Murray because, like, she hasn't got it. Like, I can't even speak English right, you know? I'm, when God first challenged me to, to start publicly speaking, I remember telling him, Lord, I come from Yorkshire. Yorkshire is, is like an Alabama kind of accent. <laughs> we have the same sort of reputation I love Alabama. If there's anyone, there's probably not because I'm in Louisiana. But if there's anyone from Alabama, please know you are loved. Um, but Yorkshire has the same reputation as Alabama. And so I'm like, Lord, if you wanted to me to speak publicly, why wasn't I born in London? Or somewhere where I sound like the Queen's English rather than me? And so many times we can see the excuses as to why we're not good enough. Do you know what? In and of ourselves, we will never be good enough. But the grace of Jesus Christ, when we simply say yes, watch what he does. Because he can do far more in and through a submitted vessel than he can through a vessel who thinks they've got it all figured out by themselves. So this little girl, she didn't have the authority or ranking to speak into the situation. But because of her heart of compassion, she did. I was sat in that brick factory and I said, okay, God. What can we do to bring you into this place? And I felt it on our hearts that until we can get all the kids out of slavery, and that is our end goal, by the way, but until that point, we will commit to going in to the brick factories. We'll go into the midst of slavery. We will go into the darkest of the dark places, bringing your love and your joy. 
And then I remember the moment thinking, hmm, how do you ask a brick master if you can do Sunday school in their brickyards? How, like, that's never going to happen. Like, that is a ridiculous idea, Becky. Get that idea out of your head because there's no way on planet Earth that a brick master is going to allow you to go in one hour a week to do Sunday school. That's just never going to happen because it's going to eat away from the profits. But you know what? Sometimes if you don't ask, you don't get. And sometimes if you just go in and ask. And you know, to this day, One by One now runs the largest Sunday school across Pakistan. And that Sunday school, come on. Thank you, Jesus. That Sunday school isn't happening inside the safety of a nice, neat little church. That Sunday school is happening on the brick kiln yard. It's right there in the midst of their slavery, in the midst of the darkest places. We want to take Jesus Christ right onto the enemy's backyard and show God, show what God can do, you know? And so we have the joy of going in and every week being with these kids, pouring into them, bringing hope, bringing life. And not only is that now impacting the kids, but it's impacting their parents. And we're seeing God do a sign and a wonder right in the midst of brick factories. Now, our heart is still to get these families out. We're not going to rest at that. Our heart is to see freedom in every form. But until they are physically free, we're going to keep going in and and so that they're spiritually free. Amen? Lesson number three, this little girl. You might well be the key to somebody else's breakthrough. This little girl spoke up. She had faith about a miracle-working God. And she spoke up. And because she spoke up, because she put her neck on the line, as it were, Naaman received his miracle. We have no idea what happened to this little girl. Was she set free as a result, as a reward? Scripture never tells us. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. We don't know. But she had a heart so much like Christ that she put somebody else before herself. I think sometimes if we would just have a heart like that, a heart that says, okay, I'm not going to gain anything from this, but I want to love my neighbor well. There's something that happens. The more you fall in love with Jesus, the easier it is to love your neighbor. The whole Bible can be summed up in love God and love people. It's right there. It's as easy as that. Sometimes we we overcomplicate scripture. But let me just tell you, if you love God and you love people, you've got it figured out. But the more you fall in love with Jesus, the easier it becomes to love people still be a little challenging out there right at times. The amount of times I have people who meet me and they're like, okay, especially in America, they're like, okay, I'm going to come out with you to Pakistan and I'm going to kill all the brickmasters. I'm like, well, okay, I see the plan there. I see where you're going with that, but how about we love them? Ooh, that's a little odd, isn't it? The guy with a fist in my face, I would love to tell you, I told them all about the love of Jesus Christ, but I just got out. I was like, I want to keep my face, you know? It's already changing. I'm in my 40s now, and the mirror looks different from how it looks in my head. You know, I'm like, what's going on here? I do not need a punch in the face right now. But I do believe if we go in with a heart of compassion and love the unlovely, watch what Jesus will do. For this little girl, she spoke up. She put Naaman before herself. I'm inspired by that. I'm challenged by that. And I believe if every single one of us walked out of here thinking, okay, what can I do to love my neighbor well? Even if it's not going to benefit my life, even if I get no glory from this, 
Sometimes we are willing to sow seeds and tell people about Jesus, but then when they don't want to know, we, we can kind of quit and retreat, right? Well, you know, God, I tried. But are we willing to continually sow seed even if we never see that blossom? Even if we never in our own lives see the fruit from it? But are we still willing to be faithful in sowing the seed and loving our neighbor well? And this little girl challenges my life. I'm going to share one story before I hand over. And that's in 2020. Um, obviously, we were in the, in the throes of COVID. And COVID had quite an impact on one by one. Um, people who had been able to stand with one by one for years were suddenly having to pull out. They were being made redundant in their workplaces. And so quite rightly had to pull out. But I remember I'd had a number of people all pull out at one time and I'm still getting the bills for, we have 80 staff across the world and hundreds of kids. And so I've still got all these bills to pay and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what is going on? We were also going through a very challenging time in our own personal lives. It was um, a real season of deep pain and just an uncomfortable time. And so I remember at the beginning of 21, 2021, it was quite clear the impacts of COVID weren't gone just yet. And so I remember making my master plan of survival for one by one. And so I, I made my master plan and it was this, I'm not going to take on any new kids. I'm not going to take on any new staff and I'm not going to launch any new projects. I know you're thinking, wow, what a woman of great faith. I just want to be really real. I think people connect far more with reality than someone who's polished and got it all together. I, I am the least polished person you will ever meet and have nothing together. Um, so I came up with the master plan of survival for one by one. This is how we're going to ride out the pandemic. This is how we're going to ride out a personal storm in our own family and life. This is how we're going to survive. And so I told God, I'm still realizing that that's a big mistake, by the way. I don't know if it's been female or what it is, but I sometimes like to help him out. I'm learning. Just keep my mouth shut, Becky. Let him do it. You know, he's far better at being God than me. I'm only just starting to realize this. But I made my master plan of this is how one by one's going to survive the storm. Within a, a day or so of making my master plan, I received a phone call from our team in Pakistan. They'd just gone into another brick factory. And they called me up and they said, Becky, we've just been in a factory and there was a three-year-old named Mercy. Mercy was raped, murdered, and then her body just left on the floor of the factory for people to walk past because, well, one, she's just a girl, and two, she's just a slave. Our team were broken, and they said, Becky, what can we do? And I remember putting the phone down saying, God, not now. Not now, Lord. Lord, at any other point, you know we'd say yes, but God, we're hurting right now. And sometimes it's tempting to say to God, okay, well, God, once this part of my life's figured out, whether that be, well, once I'm paid off my mortgage, well, then I can do this. Well, once I've, you know, restored in a certain area, well, then I can do this. And so many times we've got hesitations as to why we can't help right now today. And I put the phone down thinking, oh, God, not now. Maybe once one by one's in a stronger position, then we can reach and do more. You see, I wanted to be wise and responsible for the kids and staff already in our care. I genuinely thought I was being wise and responsible. But you know, when you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and you just know, you just know. And I remember thinking, God, when I'm not hurting anymore, well, then we can reach out. 
But all of a sudden I thought of Mercy's mum. And I thought, how on earth could I ever meet her mum and say to her, well, once one by one's in a stronger place, well, then we'll, we'll do something to help. Or once I'm no longer personally hurting, well, then I'll, I'll reach out and hurt, help your hurt. I knew I couldn't do that. We all know the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus very wisely selects two characters besides the Good Samaritan. He selects a priest and a Levite. And he does this in the story for a very specific reason. These are not atheists. These were not agnostics. These were people who genuinely believed they were serving God in their life. And they, they, God, Jesus very wisely chooses these two characters as people who thought, if you said to them, are you serving God? Well, yes, of course. I'm, I'm going to go to the temple. I'm, I'm busy serving the plans and purposes of God. And yet they were so busy caught up in their own life that they chose to look the other way when a need represented itself, presented itself. When I put the phone down, I knew I couldn't look the other way. I can honestly say to you, that's been my most painful yes ever. But I remember calling my UK board and saying, telling them about mercy. And I said, okay, we're going to double our work in Pakistan. We're going to double the size of the safe house to rescue more kids out of slavery. But we're going to double our Sunday school work as well. At that point, we were in 24 brick factories and we had 39 kids. No, we had 50 kids by that point. And so I called our, our board and I remember them saying, well, do we have a budget in place for that? Not yet. But I know I've come to learn that when we say yes to Jesus, it enables him to do far more than I ever could. On the other side of your yes, on miracles of transformation that only he can do, is just waiting for a heart that's submitted and willing to say yes. We said yes to Jesus and we doubled the size of our Sunday school. We're now working in 50 brick factories, taking Sunday school in right into the midst of slavery. We doubled the size of our safe house and now have rescued 85 kids out of slavery. 85 kids, come on. 85 kids who will never have to go through what little Mercy went through. I had the honor of sitting with her mom last October. There were no words in a moment like that. I just sat and cried with her. I sat and prayed with her. She still lives in the brick factory where Mercy's murderer's family lives. You can only imagine the tension that's going on there. It's a brutal and cruel world. But to go in with the love of Jesus Christ, to sit with the broken, to sit and love on them one by one has been the greatest joy of my life. And that was the hardest yes I've ever given, but I'm so glad. What's your yes today? What area of influence is God waiting for you just to be submitted in so that he can do what you cannot, that he will open doors of influence into ranking that's way above your station in human terms. There are no stations, spiritually speaking. We are all, all sinners covered by the grace and love of Jesus Christ, right? But in terms of human speaking, I believe God will give you areas of access and influence. I'm praying for one by one to start having influence at a governmental level. And I'm seeing tiny little doors opening that are leading into that way. And I'm so thankful, so thankful to God. But may we never lose heart for the ones in front of us. May we never become too big for our boots that we're not willing to go and sit in the dirt with a broken child. But I believe when you are willing to go and sit in the dirt with a broken child, that watch what doors God will begin to open before you. As you simply say yes to him, I want to pray with you. 
I don't want to do an altar call this morning because actually I believe the altar calls when we walk out of this door. I believe the altar calls Monday morning when we go into our workplaces or when we go and we're, we're homeschooling our kids or whatever that may look like. I believe that's when the rubber hits the road, as it were. But I want to pray with you this morning that you would have influence and access into areas that only God can do. I want to, I want to say, again say, please stop by our table before you rush off today. We would love it if some of you are able to stand with us and help build freedom around the world, then please stop by today. But Father, I want to thank you for your goodness. I want to thank you that scripture is filled with heroes just like this little girl, a nameless, faceless hero. But because she had such a faith and she chose to speak up, you did incredible signs and wonders through that little life. Father, would you do the same with us? God, through this nameless, faceless person, would you bring your glory into brick factories? Would you bring slavery down? Would you bring down the, the Goliath of slavery? Bring that giant down in Jesus' name. And Father, for every life sat here today, we simply surrender to you. That Father, you would give us a heart of humility and compassion. And that as you do that, we would also become unlikely influencers, bringing your glory and your love and your hope and your joy into very dark and broken situations that surround every one of our lives. We know full well we don't have to go out to Pakistan or Afghanistan to see brokenness. We simply go through the doors of the church and we see it right there. God, would you use every single one of our lives. Let us be unlikely influencers so that you would receive all the glory and all the honor that you are so worthy of. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.